Yeah, so I used to have a phobia of cats. Really? Phobia of cats. Yeah. You know, not not a hatred, not a a phobia. You I know. You. And the reason I had this phobia is because you know, uh, my grandmother used to gather us around the stove. You know, those old stoves. Mm. Yes, 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 and 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 tell us stories about cats and how cats were used by witches. Yeah. And the funny thing about these cats is that they could speak English. You know? <laughs> and for us as kids, you know, English is a very outwardly language, unattainable language, made them very powerful and dangerous. You know, so so that's where the phobia comes from. Sure. You know. Uh, but then, you know, after some time, I I went to live in, in England, you know, where I studied uh, for my PhD, and my friends had cats, of course. <laughs> so so I'm no longer scared of cats now, you know. So so that's one of the things that I'm unfree of. But I'm sure from a psychoanalytical perspective, yeah. if someone breaks it down, the phobia and no longer phobia, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be very interesting what this phobia was about mm, mm, and what this freedom from this phobia means, mm. you know, psychoanalytically. You know? I mean, all the pieces are there, the fact that they were speaking English as well and you <laughs> and you, you note that and it's a point to share as well. That's right, that's you know right, I mean? that's right. And yeah. that, you know, they're not used by witches, you know. This is the Freedom After podcast by the Nelson Mandela Foundation. My name is Nawo Mohopa, and you're listening to Tsapo Malingozi. Could you tell us more about, about where you went to school, in particular primary school, and who were your friends, where was it, mm. how, what games did you play? So I went to a primary school called uh, Mabulela in 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 uh in Bluefontein and then I went to another one in Velcom, I forgot the, the name now. Not Velcom in 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 Odendals. Yes. We were lucky because, you know, it was just before the transition, nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety two, and our school was a formal school, formerly built school in the township. Unlike other schools that were very old and run down. So as part of, you know, co-opting black people into, you know, middle class existence, you know, they build this formal schooling. But also as part of quelling the revolution, you know, they build this formal school. So the school that I went to was, you know, was a proper school, you know, proper building and so forth. Of course, nothing compared to what some of my friends went to in the in the in the suburbs. Uh, so yeah, you know, in, in Bluefontein, very, you know, good school. I, I, I like the school very much, except that in 1990, we couldn't go to school when Nelson Mandela, you know, came out of prison. You know, there was, you know, pandemonium everywhere. Uh, so, so the school was closed for a whole year in 1990. Uh, so I lost uh, a year of schooling, you know. But I liked, you know, the schooling then because we played a lot of football and I was very good at football. I was captain, you know, uh, played for the champion, uh, the Chappies Little League yeah. under 12s, you know. <laughs> yes. uh, so, so really, you know, enjoyed, you know, uh, uh, playing football. But of course, there were not a lot of amenities like parks and mm. things like that. Mm. So we play in the felt, you know, we play just in the felt. Mm. And I remember the first time I discovered a dead person. 
was during this course of playing, you know, uh, in the felt. You know, we were playing the felt, we kicked the ball into, you know, somewhere deep into the felt. Uh, and discover this person, you know, he'd been dead for some time, wiped in a carpet, you know, like you see in the movies, you know, just like that, wiped in a, you know, in a carpet uh, and, and very bloated, you know, because they've been there for quite some time. The second time I, you know, uh, also encountered a dead person was in a similar scenario, but this time next to my grandmother's house where, you know, once again playing football, you know, in a very, in a slope, you know, the ball went, you know, down the slope and we discovered this baby, newly born baby, who had been crushed, you know, with a big stone. And you could see that it's a newly born baby because they were covered in a newspaper, but still sticky because they were, you know, just, you know, after being born. Uh, and they've been crushed with this big, big stone, you know? So, so that was a kind of that, type of childhood, you know, where, you know, on the one hand, you are shielded from what's happening in in the political sphere. You know, you play football, you do like that. You never go to town, so you never encounter white people. Uh, but then you keep seeing these weird things, you know, dead bodies, you know, out of the blue. A lot of violence, you know, uh, uh, in the townships, you know, amongst so-called sources, you know, just outside my house, our house still living today is on the main street, you know. So people coming from the shebins and the taverns will fight, and you, you know, you wake up in the morning and you find a dead person, you know, outside of your yard, you yeah. know. But also, it was during the 1980s, during the 80s and early 90s, and you'll know that this was the most violent time in the history of South Africa ever in the history of South Africa, mm-hmm. with a final push, you know, to destroy apartheid yeah. but with a party state also you know coming very hard to quell the revolution you know mm. so a lot of tear gas a lot of protests mm. in fact the first english word that i learned i think I, I hope this is not you know me romanticizing this but i remember the first word that i learned was power and people will say you know we are going to make power And what they meant by that was that they're going to riot, not just protest, but riot. You know, so, you know, when they, a car belonging to the municipality or the municipal building, people will go there and burn it down and they will say, we are making power. Mm. Now, looking back, I understand because this was in the late 80s, it came from the notion of people's power. You know, people's power being the slogan of the UDF and civic movement. So, so on the one hand, you see this uprisings and we are so inspired you know by the the uprising by the confidence of people taking on the state but on the other hand you know uh, i i witnessed a lot of neglecting you yeah. know neglecting of so-called you know informers and impimpies and of course as children i mean if you even if you look at the photos today of neglecting you'll see kids at the forefront <laughs> dancing cheering on the necklacing, you know. I, I, I witnessed many of those kind of, you know, scenarios, you know, necklacing and so forth. But also, of course, in the context of apartheid, in the context of social oppression, a lot of GBV, a lot of gender-based violence, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, social strife, you know, uh, because of that.
I want to ask you this question, and it's very poetic, and yeah. it barely makes sense. <laughs> but here's the question: It's about the way Steve Biko died. Um, but the way he died was so the opposite of black consciousness in that way, in the sense that it wasn't beautiful. It wasn't mm. black in the way that we understand warmth and you know what I mean. Um, kind of maybe perhaps notions of indi- in being indigenous, and you know what I mean. Mm. That the way that one dies is is uh, no, not like that. You know what mm. I mean. Um, and sometimes poetically, is is you know, as, in as much as Biko lived as a, you know, um, as a, as a subscriber of black consciousness and one of the authors of it, but he died like an Afro pessimist. You know, mm. an Afro pessimist in the sense, at least in so far as you know, absolutely, it's an African American notion. But in so far as blackness suffers in a very special way, in a very particular way, mm. in a way that establishes, creates, and maintains kind of a white civility, and you know what I mm. mean. Um, mm. And I want to think about how Pico died and if that's relevant at all, you know what I mean, mm. um, in terms of what does black consciousness mean for us today, yeah. if you can author it and yeah. die like, and die, not just die, but like that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Biko is very, very interesting, you know? <laughs> He's one of the, our most interesting thinker. Because of course, Bigo was free. <laughs> Bigo was free, you know? The way we think about Bigo and black consciousness today is to, is to make him a prisoner. But Bigo, even a guy who, from the age of 24, 25, was banned, meaning he couldn't meet five people at the same time. This guy was free. You look at all his pictures, he's laughing. This big laughter. (laughs) He had friends from all classes and all races. Black and white girlfriends. (laughs) You know? You know, he's got one of his chapters, he begins with, you know, I think it's called We Blacks, uh, the chapter in uh, I Read What I Like, where he says, I have lived my life in condition of institutionalized segregation. My life life where I go to school and so forth. So all his task has been about rebelling against this, you know, rebelling against the idea that, that I am unfree. So I will be free to love who I want to love. Mm-hmm. I will be free to have friends who, with whom I want to be friends with. You know, Donald Woods uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, Indian chaps, you know, mm-hmm. uh, white girlfriends, liberals and so forth, right? Very, very free. Very, very free. Lots of laughter mm-hmm. all the time. One of his most interesting feature was, you know, this Goomba Goomba. They call them Goomba Goomba parties. Mm-hmm. So every night they would have these parties and they would party and drink hard and debate issues. Mm. That's what he liked, being in company of people, debating. So so Steve Biko's black consciousness was not austere, number one. Ah. Not austere, formal, you know, military kind of thing. Mm, mm, mm. Number two, it was an idea of prefiguring liberation before liberation comes. Mm. Prefiguring it today even under conditions of oppression. Number three, Big was interesting because he says, uh, we are not going to demand anything from the apartheid government, nothing. Mm. We don't recognize it, therefore we're not going to demand anything. Mm. So the first step that he teaches us in any situation of oppression is to refuse that which has been refused to you, to refuse that which has been refused to you. 
if they refuse for you to enter these courts, if they refuse you to live in these places, if they refuse you the right to vote, mm. refuse that. Yeah. Don't demand it because demanding it is a short... First of all, you are recognizing the state. Yeah. Number two, you are asking for assimilation. So number one, refusing that which has been refused to you. Number two, building a very strong consciousness. Very, very strong consciousness of a group identity. But which is not very limited. Yeah. Which is porous. You know, that's why he says, you know, black, uh, being black is not a matter of pigmentation. Yeah. Being black is not a matter of pigmentation. It's about, you know, number one, being oppressed, but number two, consciousness to do something about that oppression. Mm -hmm. Therefore, Indian people are allowed with us. Yeah. Current people are part of us. They are also black. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference between Steve Bigo and Pan-Africanist movement. I see. Yeah. His brother was PSC. He, even though his brother was PSC, he didn't join PSC because he wanted a capacious notion of, of blackness. Yeah. Right? The way he dies, you know, yeah. very, very mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. Because number one, he's, he anticipates it. Yeah. He anticipates it, you know. He refuses to take up a scholarship in the States. You know, a congressman comes from the States, say, come, you know, go to exile. Mm. You are so smart. He refuses to go to exile. Mm. He said, I would live here. And of course, that famous, you know, phrase of his, is better to die for a dream that will live than to live for a dream that will die. Yeah. Or an idea that will die. So they arrest him. And he says, yeah, I'm Steve Bigo. And, you know, they're beating up, he's beating back, he's fighting back, yeah. <laughs> you know? You know, that's not Afro-pessimism. Mm. That's black consciousness. Mm. The idea that I will fight until the death, mm. right? So, 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 of course, Steve Bigo had to die, you know? Because someone like this is too inspirational. And his inspiration doesn't come from the fact that he is brave in a military sense, that he inspires people to fight. He's dangerous to the system because he prefigures liberation. Number two, he's dangerous because his idea of future South Africa, very, very deep. You know, in Azania, there shall be no white, there shall be no black, there shall be one nation. So black consciousness as a transition, not as an emancipatory vision, yeah. as a transition for now to fight against strong white racism, therefore strong black consciousness. After that, you know, the thesis is one society. Very, very dangerous. Because the political system would have been comfortable with someone who says, for me, black consciousness is the emancipatory vision forever. We are fighting for a black state. Yeah. They would have given me a homeland. Well, it's very, very clear that I don't want that. I want to liberate everyone. And that, you know, uh, even my oppressors, if they lose their privilege, if they admit to fighting for a just society, they can be proud of us. That's a very, very dangerous person. You know, so he turns the table against liberalism. You know, liberalism says, assimilate with us, be part of us, and let's fight together. He turns the table and say, you know, uh, white skin, black soul. Yeah. 
well-skinned black soul. I mean, listen to that's very deep. In the context where black people should not have a soul, don't have a soul, from colonialism, from the day when 1492 when Columbus moved, black people don't have a soul. But he says, you white people do have a soul. Right? He turns the table and he causes a very deep, you know, crisis, you know, amongst, you know, uh, uh, white liberals, you know, <laughs> people like, you know, uh, uh, people in, 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 in the student movements. Yeah. Say, ah, we thought this guy was part of us, but actually he's telling us that we are beneficiaries of the system. And if we are true to what we are saying, he's forcing them to commit race suicide, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. He's asking the question, mm -hmm. can you be part of liberation if you're still white? Can you be part of liberation if you are still white? So one, lose your privilege. Two, don't come to us, don't be part of us. Commit civil war amongst white people, mm -hmm. ideologically, whatever. Amongst, don't, don't come and say, you know, we are fighting with you. Go fight with other white, be, mm -hmm. betray the white race and fight against white people and help to dissolve it, then we can talk. Yeah. Right? Very, 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 very serious. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, you know, his notion that we should not take power now. Hmm. We should first work on our minds. If we take power tomorrow, we will oppress each other. So don't give me power now. Even if it's after 20 years, it's fine. But the first step is that we need to decolonize our mind. Yeah. We need to pump life into the black man, as he put it, meaning black consciousness. If we don't do that, we will oppress each other. Mm. Very, very deep, you know? Mm. So Steve Bigo is not an Afro-pessimist, you know, uh, like we understand today, you know? Yeah. The, the, you know, uh, some strands of, of for pessimism made up of two things. Number one, as a critique for me, you know, repeating what the oppressors say about you. Black person is a nobody, it's a subhuman being. Yeah. And you repeat that, <laughs> you mm. know? Uh, that's what Fanon meant. It comes from Fanon, but that's not what he meant when he said black man is a no, you know? Mm. But you repeat what, what people say. Number two, an obsession with the notion of social death, <laughs> you know, social yeah. death. Where is social optimism, <laughs> you mm. know, in all of this? Mm. Steve Bigo lives, he makes parties. Yes. He builds clinics. He builds schools. Hmm. That's not pessimism. Hmm. That's not fatalism. Hmm. That's prefiguring and also reclaiming self-reliance, self-definition, and so forth, you know, and self-empowerment. Yeah. That's not Afro-pessimism. Uh, so he dies as a a liberated black man, that's hmm. a liberated black man. That's why when he dies, there's a need to show his pictures, yeah. all bloodied, all bloated, all beaten up. There's a need to do that, you know, to kill hmm. the spirit. Hmm. But when he dies, you should see the march that happened, hmm. you know, in his town. In fact, the march, went through the white town. Yes. And on that day, <laughs> wow. white people hid. Wow. 
So how do we understand that? That in the context of apartheid, people reclaim the town, the white town, and marched mm. through the town. And if you look at the at the at this coffin, mm. you know, very beautiful coffin made by you know uh, uh, the Black Consciousness Movement. Yes. You know. Yeah. So yeah, Steve Bigo is 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 uh, yeah. I disagree that he he dies as an Afro pessimist. Yeah. You know, nothing you. about him. It's about repeating what the oppressors say about you. Mm, mm. Afro pessimism doesn't give us a political goal and a political organization mm. and movement. Yeah. As far as you can see, mm. he built a movement, not just a political movement, but a social movement where there are clinics, healthcare, mm. where there are schools, literacy, mm. where there were food gardens. Yes. Where there were journals, you know, uh, ideas being disseminated. Mm. This guy was very far. This I guy was you. too far. And my pity is that today, our notion of black consciousness is number one, veers towards Afro pessimism, as uh, I've been saying. Yeah. Number two, nativist. Yes. <laughs> the idea that I want to reclaim to reclaim my native identity. Mm. Nothing, you know, Bigo doesn't talk about. They need to reclaim indigenous culture. In <laughs> fact, his his chapter on where he talks about culture, you know, some aspect of African culture, he calls it. Mm -hmm. And when we read the chapter, you know, he says, you know, black people are all about music and dance. Black people put a person before the economy, before property, mm -hmm. therefore communalism and so forth. But when you read, you know, he veers between African culture and, and black culture. Sure. Black diasporic culture. And it's very, very clear. We don't want to go back to pre-colonialism. Yeah. Number two, we need to get rid of certain aspects of African culture that are very patriarchal and so forth. Wow. Which is ironic because he was very patriarchal, you know, cheating and having many girlfriends and so forth, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, so I was teaching there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you, can, can, perhaps moving towards closing here, two questions or, or two opportunities maybe. Mm. Um, so the first one is about learning how to swim. So some time ago you were sharing um, a story about learning how to swim, mm. but you kind of took us back to a very early trauma of, of swimming with friends and, mm. and, 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 and discovering that body of water. Of course, yes, Ganging, yes, I think it yes. was. Yeah, so as I said, you know, opposite my mom's house was a dumping area uh, where we used to go to get, you know, used toys and things like that that we could use. But of course, because it was a dump, there was also, you know, when it drains, body of water, you know. <laughs> so I remember we used to swim there sometime and I used to be, a, you know, okay swimmer. So one day, you know, my mom comes from work and he finds me sitting outside the house, you know, waiting for her. And I was, you know, I was ashy because I'd swam without, and I didn't put lotion afterwards, you know? So why are you so ashy? I said, no, we've been swimming. Where did you swim? Did you go to a swimming pool at the colored people's area? Because that was the only place where we could swim in the colored people's area in Cairo. I said, no, 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 we just swam here, opposite here. Oh, I said, so mom, it was nice. We went there. There was a dead dog. We took out the dead dog and we started swimming. And for the one and only time, my mother slept me, you know, uh, one and only time she ever hit me, you know, because she was so shocked mm -hmm. that we took out the dead dog 
and we swam in there. We didn't see anything wrong with that, you know. Yeah. You know, I must have been about nine or ten, and that was the last time I swam, <laughs> you know, until until a few, you know, months ago this year. So this year, you know, my child is, you know, uh, two years old. So we began taking him to lessons, lessons, swimming lessons. Yeah. But I also enrolled myself in, yeah. you know, swimming, you know. So it's been very beautiful, you know, learning to swim with my child, who, of course, is more brave than me and does not scared of water. And me, I'm a bit scared, you know. So sure. in terms of power relations, you know, who's the <laughs> father here, you know. More than anything, apparently, it was a waste of time. Yeah. Look, I'm so old, but I can't swim, you know? Of course, my friends who grew up in villages, they could swim because there were rivers and so forth. But some of us who grew up in the townships, you know, very, very difficult to find opportunities to swim. So my child growing up in the suburb, going to a good school, good swimming school, it's been very, very interesting and I spend a lot of time with him. Uh, uh, we go to parks on Saturday, we go to galleries on Saturdays, and in a sense, I'm relieving what I missed out on, yeah. you know, as a wow. child. Uh, and I'm, I hope I'm not imposing things mm. on him. But he's, he enjoys galleries, he enjoys parks, and he enjoys... And, and every time I go with him to the park, which is not far from here, and there are swings, and he's safe, and so forth, mm. and I always think back to my days of discovering dead bodies, you know, while playing. Uh, or in terms of our clients that we represent at my institution where, you know, they don't have parks, where, you know, in the, some of this informal settlement, yeah. settlements, you know. So, so the notion of two wells in one society, very, very, so yeah, learning to swim for me has been a metaphor for reclaiming what was lost. Yeah. Because of apartheid. I hear that. Yeah. Freedom After by the Nelson Mandela Foundation is produced by Showcast Media, an original score by Subusile Kaba, and cover artwork by Paula Manelli. The Freedom After podcast is supported by the Old Mutual Foundation. My name is Nawo Mohopa. Thank you for listening.